today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, the story that uh, well has rocked the uh, the business world and certainly rocked the Oshawa community. The announcement uh, that General Motors is going to be shutting down their plant in Oshawa as part of a massive restructuring, we are told. Uh, details are few at this point. There is an announcement, they say, uh, 10 o'clock this morning, an official announcement. But uh, the cat's out of the bag, pretty much. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Degut School of Business, uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us up to speed. Marvin, thank you for uh, jumping in here and telling us uh, exactly what's going on. And maybe that's the first question I should ask you. What is happening here? Right. So, again, we're, we are speculating a little bit, Bill, but, but we'll try to go down this road. Let me just take you back a little bit. Um, earlier this year, in March of this year, there was an announcement from GM about the Oshawa plant that it was going to go from two shifts a day to one shift a day. Now, that Oshawa plant manufactures the Chevrolet Impala as well as the uh, Cadillac XTS. These are cars, and demand for these cars had been declining, so they said, we don't need to produce as many. We're going to go to one shift a day. The nice folks at uh, Unifor, the union that represents automotive workers, has been noting for some time that uh, GM had been silent on what they were going to do with Oshawa after December 2019. The current production, which is of these vehicles, the, the Impala and the Cadillac, expires at that point. And uh, although they've talked about other factories where their future was going to be, they had been silent on this. So this announcement today at 10 o'clock is really going to talk about what are they going to do with this factory after December 2019. Nothing in 2018, nothing in early 2019, late 2019. I'll give you the best case scenario is that they announce that, uh, yes, we're going to cease making these Impalas and these Cadillacs. We're going to shut the plant for, say, three, four months to retool, and then we're going to reopen, bring all the people back, and we're going to make this new vehicle, whatever it happens to be, most likely a crossover, but could be an electric vehicle. The worst-case scenario is that uh, we're going to close this factory and keep it closed, and 2,500 people lose their job. 300 uh, 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 management people also would lose their job. Yeah, which is why I think a lot of people are having trouble coming to grips with this, because the, what they were saying yesterday was, uh, it's not necessarily closing, but uh, there will be no, we're not going to produce co these cars here anymore. So you figure, well, you know, this, where, what, what's, what's in between there? Uh, they're, they're not going to send 2,500 people to work with nothing to do. Well, correct. So uh, this, this is the concern. Now, Unifor has been very clear that they don't think, they do not think, this is an announcement that it's going to be closed forever. They actually think it's more of a short-term closure. closure. And if that's the case, then at 10 o'clock, you might also expect to see somebody from the federal government and the provincial government, because normally when GM or one of these big companies needs money for retooling, they ask for and receive some government grants for this. Um, obviously, if there's nobody there, then the more likely scenario. And, and apparently, this is not the only announcement GM is making today. They're going to be making it some other plants in the United States because they're, they're shifting their direction. Basically, you and I aren't buying cars the way we used to. We're buying these other kinds of vehicles, whether they are trucks or SUVs or what they call crossover vehicles, which are kind of half car, half SUV. Well, and, and that's not a new story, of course. We already know that Ford made that announcement some months ago, that essentially they're getting out of the automobile business and going with SUVs and crossover vehicles uh, in the future. So with that in mind and in that context, is this much of a surprise at all? 
No, uh, other than the, the way it broke as a rumor, you know, normally I, I try to calm everybody down and say, let's just let the company announce what it has to announce. If it's bad news, we'll deal with it at that point. But people wanted to see this more. At one point yesterday, uh, nice people were contacting me. GM is shutting all of its operations in Canada. Uh, Donald Trump ordered them to shut all this. No, this has nothing to do with Donald Trump. This has nothing to do with the United States, Mexico, Canada, USMCA agreement. This has nothing to do with any auto tariffs because there are no auto tariffs. It has nothing to do with steel tariffs. That's not the place here. This is just GM telling you that uh, uh, it, it, the kind of cars that were being made at this Oshawa plant, they don't want to keep making. So what are they going to do with the plant instead? And yes, we have to be prepared that the worst case scenario is that there is no future and that everyone's lost their job. Um, but the, the possible good news is instead it might be a temporary closure as they retool to make something else that people are buying. You can understand some of the consternation about Trump uh, simply because we all remember during the NAFTA negotiations, he allegedly, uh, every time there was a snag in the discussions, held up a picture of the Impella and said, remember this. Uh, so, and, and it, I'm not suggesting there is a link there, but I mean, you know, people are looking a little warily, I think, at this and just wondering if there's any influence uh, from the U.S. government in this. Yeah, and I, and I understand exactly where they're coming from. Uh, I understand as well that uh, uh, the allegedness that you're talking about actually came from Donald Trump himself. He said that he yeah. held up these photos. Whether you want to believe Mr. Trump or not, I'll leave up to you. Um, but I don't think this has anything to do with him. In fact, uh, if I take you back to 2017, there was a strike at the Cami factory in Ingersoll. That's yeah. another GM-type product. They make the Equinox there. And uh, Jerry Diaz, who's the leader of Unifor at that time, said... You know, yes, we're going to settle this thing in Ingersoll, but the big question is what is the future of this plant in Oshawa because they've only committed to making these vehicles till the end of 2019. And, Bill, let me anticipate another question you might ask. Uh, wait a minute, isn't GM the company that we helped bail out back in 2007-8 in the last recession when they were in economic problems? Mm -hmm. We did. We did bail them out. Well, didn't we get guarantees? We did, but all those guarantees expire. Let me think. Oh, yeah, December 2019 which seemed like forever in 2007, but you blink and now it's here. So uh, we're, we're all going to see where they want to go from here. And to your point that, that maybe this is just a retooling announcement, uh, and I, I agree with you that if that were the case, you'd probably see a representative from government uh, you know, standing at the podium when they make that announcement in about 45 minutes. But the word I got last night, Marvin, is that the uh, Canadian government and the Ontario government only found out about this last evening. Uh, so that tells me that they're not in on this. And that's quite possible, Bill. You know, we're, we're hearing, quote-unquote, hearing so many stories from so many places, none of them attributed to anybody. No one wants to speak on the record. Um, I'll give you another odd little twist. On November the 8th, that's a little less than three weeks ago, GM Canada issued a press release recognizing 100 years of operations in Canada and the theme of the press release is where is GM Canada going to go for the next hundred years? There was no indication that, well, step one, we're going to cease operations in Oshawa and go from there. So who knew this? When did they know this? Uh, I, I don't know when we're going to learn that information. But I'm still hopeful because it is nothing more than rumor. And as you know, people tend to look at rumors like the sky is falling. They always imagine the worst. Sometimes when you see the reality, it's a little less than what the worst really was. Now, and again, I'm just trying to piece together an awful lot of the information and, and right. maybe even misinformation, I guess, that you know that's in front of us over the last 15 hours or so. Uh, Unifor, they tell us, uh, has not made an official comment about this, but they said they're scheduled to hold a discussion with General Motors sometime uh, today. 
uh, to provide further comment about what's going on. So it, it just seems as if everybody got caught off guard by this. But as, as you described the series of events that have happened over the last little while, there seemed to be a trail that was leading us to this. Well, we have been looking for some kind of an announcement on the future of this plant, I would say, for the better part of six months. And, and look, again, I'm, 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 this is going to seem odd as we're talking about this, but I'm actually going to give credit to GM. You know, I know people say, oh, well, how, you know, a great way to wish me a Merry Christmas by announcing a closure. But the best thing a company can do is once you know definitively what your plans are for an area is to let everybody know what's going on. There could be people who are thinking at this Christmas season or uh, making a New Year's resolution going into 2019, this is the year we're going to start a family, or this is the year that we're going to buy the house, or this is the year we're going to buy that second car, assuming that everything was going to be fine on the job front going forward. If the company knows that isn't the case, the most humane thing they can do is share it with people as soon as they know it so they can alter their plans accordingly. So we've been waiting for six months or so for GM to make an announcement I think this is that announcement, good or bad. It's just somehow it broke yesterday in a way that implied that it was mostly bad news. And it may be, but there may also be some silver in the, in the lining of this cloud. Marvin, what about the impact this has on community? I mean, I think we've all learned over the last 10 or 15 years to try to diversify our local economies. Uh, Hamilton, I guess, a, a classic example of that. You know, we still have steel, but we don't rely solely on steel and, and have heavy industry on Burlington Street like we used to. But what's this, if, if it's a worst-case scenario, what does this do to a community like Oshawa? Mm-hmm. So let me do a couple ways on that. Uh, you know, here in Hamilton, um, we often will say to you, well, thank God this is happening now rather than in 1960, because back in 1960, 30,000 people had their job directly linked to the steel industry. Today, when you add Stelco and DeFasco and both their Hamilton and Lake Erie operations, you know, we're talking a number more on the order of, of oh, let's say 10,000 people. Uh, it's still very significant, but it isn't quite the way it was once upon a time. And the same is true for Oshawa. At one time, GM employed nearly 25,000 people in the Oshawa area. This announcement is going to affect 2,500 people plus 300 management people. It's a blow to be certain, but it's not quite the death knell it might have been if it happened 30, 40 years ago. Um, Why I also say a bit of a death knell is, unfortunately, these industries often employ people who don't have a whole lot of other employment choices. These may be people who, who graduated from high school and were able to get a very good paying manufacturing job without a whole lot of additional credentials. And then when this goes away, this opportunity goes away, there is nobody else who's going to hire them. I use that example in Hamilton as well. If the modern economy in Hamilton is based on the healthcare and education sectors, you need at least one degree to participate in those sectors, maybe two. And if I'm someone who's a, a downsized out of a job at a steel company at age 50, who has a grade 12 education, there is no simple transition from the old economy to the new economy. That's the problem here, that in Oshawa, I suspect a number of the workers, if they can, will simply just retire. But that's something, again, we're going to ask GM. If there's some hope of bringing some of these people back, retooling and doing something, that would be the silver lining. Otherwise, 2,500 people over the next year scrambling to find jobs who are maybe not qualified to earn anywhere near what they were earning with GM. And what about spin-off industries? Obviously, that's something that we in Hamilton should be concerned about. I mean, you know, we make cars here. We make steel for cars. Uh, auto parts, uh, obviously Magda, but I mean, even locally, Stackpole or like industries, places like this, are they going to be impacted by this? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, although, again, what I would note is they aren't canceling their best-selling car line here. This is a car line that was down to one shift a day. Keep in mind, companies could operate three shifts a day. So you're down to one shift a day. It, it isn't, again, exactly like they were your dominant purchaser of auto parts. There would be a, 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 a carry-on effect from this depending upon what GM decides to do in its stead. And, Bill, at the same time that we may get bad news here, you may also hear good news from somebody else who says, well, if they, again, the competitive dynamic, if they're getting out of this, then maybe Toyota in Cambridge might add 100 jobs or something like this. So bad news for some people can become good news for others, but there is a shock to the nervous system for sure. That's also why they're giving people a year to adjust to it rather than just announcing it's going to happen in two days. Well, that's the other thing I was going to ask you about this, the physical plant in Oshawa right now, the operations. If, in fact, General Motors is leaving, and, and we don't know that for sure, but if it is that, that scenario that they're going to follow through on, is anybody else interested? Is that a value to anybody else? And you mentioned Toyota, but, I mean, we've heard rumors for years now that the Chinese auto industry is trying to get a foothold in North America, too. Well, all of that is a possibility, Bill. Uh, what I would tell you in, in today's, uh, automobile manufacturing. I, I was lucky enough, in fact, to tour the Toyota assembly plant in Cambridge earlier this year. This is not what you used to picture uh, a plant being. So you could buy a big building, but inside the building, you have all this computer technology, you have all this robotic technology. That is technology that GM can redeploy within its network. So when the dust were settling there, and it would probably take six months or so for them to do this, they'll dismantle those things and sell those or, or or reallocate them within their network. So if a company, like say a Chinese company, we'll just call it ABC, appears on the horizon, they might be able to build a nice building, buy a nice building with a nice big parking lot, but they wouldn't really buy any of the technology inside because it's so proprietary anymore. Well, I guess we're all just waiting now. Uh, at 10 o'clock this morning, they say they're going to make some sort of an announcement on this. And, and, and I want just, I, I know you've got to run back into class. I just want to talk a little bit about the fact that General Motors says this, don't take this personally, Canada, because this is something we're doing globally, internationally. Uh, does this tell you that General Motors is in trouble? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say in trouble. What I would say is that consumer tastes are changing. We, we've thought for some time that uh, a lot of people want zero emissions vehicles. These would be vehicles either they're hybrids or more likely running on electricity. Uh, we know there's a lot of people working on that. We also know there's a lot of people working on driverless technology. And, and that is, if you will, just around the corner in the three- to five-year time frame that we're going to see this. So uh, GM has to respond. If the world's tastes are changing, you can't keep selling gas-powered automobiles the way you did in the past, or you'll just put yourself out of business. So I don't think they're necessarily in trouble economically, but they need to shift. And the way I'm hearing this, this is part of a GM plan shift into these zero-emission vehicles. That's why I'm hopeful that what they're going to announce instead of an absolute closure is a temporary closure while they retool, because you'd need a whole other kind of assembly process to make something like the GM LEAF, which is an electric battery-powered vehicle, or equivalent kinds of things down the road. That's what I'm really hopeful we'll hear. And then, ah, okay, that all makes sense, because they are repositioning themselves as opposed to shrinking and having nothing to replace those models. Marvin Ryder with the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks for jumping in on this. I really appreciate the input. Not a problem, Bill. Thank you. We'll, we'll talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, time for the Mayor's Town Hall with uh, Mayor-elect Marianne Meadward from the City of Burlington joining us in studio. And uh, we will open the lines up uh, in just a few minutes at 905-645-3221, 645 Star 9900 is a toll-free number. 
The email address, bkelly at 900chml.com, and on, on Twitter, at CHML Bill Kelly. Your, your questions, your comments uh, for the mayor-elect for Burlington. And uh, we'll, of course, be doing this uh, as we do with the mayors of Hamilton and Burlington on a monthly basis. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming in today. That's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to speak directly to the people, and I hope we get some phone calls. Well, I hope we will. I'm sure we will. There's not a, a lot of issues that we're going to talk about, about what uh, Burlington Council is facing. But uh, on a broader view, I guess the, the news out of Oshawa today is just a stark reminder about how communities can get knocked on their their behind by something like this. I mean, that was a shock to everybody. That was uh, devastating news, I know, for the community. And, you know, it just, uh, it reminds us that we are losing uh, industrial manufacturing jobs to other parts of the of the world, really. And we have to do a better job in Canada. And, and certainly this was part of my platform in Burlington of attracting long-term, uh, you know, new technology, a uh, lot of digital jobs with the innovation uh, corridor that they're setting up. And, uh, you know, our, our residents have to live and work here, not just live here. It's, uh, there's always going to be manufacturing, but it's a challenge for just about every community, isn't it, to, to, to be ahead of the curve when it comes to attracting whatever kind of employment it is and trying to anticipate where that, that curve is going to go. Well, and I think it reinforces the importance of having a diversified economy, even in a small community. If you have a, a one major employer for the whole town, it devastates the entire community when that that employer pulls out. And we've seen in Canada that our economic backbone is built on small and medium size enterprises, those those like micro enterprises almost. And so, um, and and they do uh, they do grow. If we can support those small ones, they grow. But then you have many of them. There's thousands of businesses rather than one or two large players. And if one of them goes, it just it just destroys your your community, your economy. So. We're really focusing at the Burlington Economic Development Corporation on how we uh, attract and and grow those small and medium-sized enterprises. They've always been the backbone of the Canadian economy. You do it differently in Burlington than, than the city of Hamilton does when it comes to economic development. That's really just an arm of, of, uh, uh, of the administration there. But, uh, but Burlington is kind of a hybrid, isn't it? We have a standalone uh, BEDC, Burlington Economic Development Corporation. We do fund them about a million point three a year. So they do get uh, funding, but they are an independent board. They're run by an independent uh, group of business people. And so there's a bit of an arm's length relationship, but a very close partnership with the city. So they uh, right now are in the process of working on um, uh, a couple of initiatives that will uh, look at how we advance and attract more business to Burlington and looking at a post-secondary education attraction strategy, looking at a retail attraction strategy, which is new for them. I'm very excited about that because it was always something that I thought was an opportunity for us. Uh, that world is changing dramatically too, so we really need to to know that world. But um, they they are uh, they are something that we we need to partner with very closely to make sure that the focus is on on attraction and growing uh, and retaining the businesses that we have here. What about uh, having that, that, uh, that attitude, and you've got the, the game all set up here, you've got the, the, the strategy set up here, but uh, I, I know years ago talking with Hazel McCallion when she was still uh, the mayor of Mississauga, and uh, she said, you know, the growth's coming your way, Hamilton Burlington, because mm-hmm. we're, we're just about tapped out. There's no space for us right now. Burlington's got challenges, too, that way, doesn't it? Well, we have actually, um, we have a fair bit of uh, vacant employment land, but the challenge is getting it on uh, on stream in a timely fashion. So 
if if you if it's completely vacant and you have to you have to do the servicing, you have to get the building permits, you you know you have to go through that whole process. It can be a, a very time consuming process, and the world can change. And so we need to make sure that we are at the city, um, you know, giving the the red carpet to uh, advance very quickly to get businesses that want to locate here to locate here. We also have enormous pressure in Burlington to convert uh, some of those classic employment lands, which are intended for, uh, you know, light industrial, industrial uses, things that are not compatible with mixed use or residential development, we're under enormous pressure to convert that to housing or to, to quote unquote, mixed use where you get, a, a, you know, a token retail, mm-hmm. uh, you get a, a dry cleaner and a nail shop, and then it's thousands of residential units. And we've certainly seen that pressure the entire time I've been on council for the Brawny Woods, huge parcel of land. And of course, that was in play uh, somewhat during the uh, Toronto Global bid for Amazon. So, you know, it, we we have pressure to grow on the residential side, but we can't be giving away our land on the uh, on the employment side to fulfill that need because then when the jobs come or when a company does want to locate, we have nowhere to put them. So it's a really it's a really tough position that we're in right now, but we have to hang on to those uh, those employment lands. It is difficult. We uh, had a similar uh, amount of pressure back when I was on Hamilton City Council, and it was for the uh, a big parcel of land that we'd set up on the South Mountain. It was supposed to be an industrial park, and I said, as soon as the Red Hill's done, no, but it went on for years, as we all know, and, and I got lobbied as a councillor, and I know the others did this, just by developers saying, okay, let's put houses. You're never going to get that road done, and they, it's just not going to happen. Well, yep. to their credit, they, they stuck to their guns, and now, of course, it's a fabulous industrial park and it's working but that's that's what cities need that's that's that tax base isn't it we need both because uh, the residential tax base is is also a high consumer of services. So the more people you have, the more communi- community centers you need, the more parks you, you need. Those are very labor intensive. They're also very tax uh, in- intensive. Uh, the the uh, commercial side pays double the tax rate, but they consume hardly any of the services other than your roads and your sewers. And so you need a good balance. And and we need more on that commercial side. But we also need to stand firm on on, on the mixed-use developments that we do approve to request office development and that, that truly does fit well within a mixed-use context. And that's always a fight because the developers typically, even still, even though we have a lot of mixed-use development happening in the GTA, their developers typically do one thing really well. They're either a commercial developer or they're a residential developer. It's very rare to see somebody with expertise in both of those. So typically what we get on some of the major high-rises that we've seen come forward is a request to reduce the required amount of office commercial space. You know, we can't we can't lease it. It's never going to, you know, kind of mm-hmm. a similar argument to the Red Hill. And so one of the uh, most controversial applications that was approved right downtown Burlington, which we want to be mixed use, we want more office and jobs down there. And we have very old and aging office stock with one or two uh, exceptions. And the development that came forward was uh, seeking and approved 
at a 70% reduction in square footage of commercial space versus what's on the ground right now. So we had over 40,000 square feet of commercial space on a bunch of assembled properties that, that were part of this development application. And the council approved a high-rise development and a reduction of 70% of that, that office. So we're, we're getting some, some token office and a couple of retail outlets along Brant Street. That was very uh, controversial, as, as much so, I would say, as the height of that building. And so we are going to have to continually request and push back and say, we want you to build commercial and office. And this, this will now um, be something we have to pay very close attention to and fight for at our mobility hubs. So the three GO stations and the downtown, because those are all supposed to be mixed use. And that pressure is going to be exceedingly for just residential. Let's talk a little bit about downtown. It was it was a, a major part, of course, of the campaign. There was a, a number of OMB, well, it's not the OMB anymore, but decisions that, that impacted the community. Uh, the community, uh, to their credit, uh, I, I've always been impressed by this, uh, were very engaged in all of the decisions and, and uh, were very vocal about what they wanted to see their city look like in the future. But uh, the, the places to grow with legislation seem to, to be almost the focal point of some of the debate that was going on. And you expressed some concerns about maybe how that interpreta- how that legislation was being interpreted. Absolutely. I, I think there's, there's obviously in, in, in our world, we are impacted by what happens at the province, but they also give us a whole lot of reign and power to make some decisions locally. And so we have to own our piece of the pie. We're not the whole pie. We're affected by places to grow. But that was the debate. The, the conversation really became, there's nothing we can do. Uh, the province holds all the cars. They're forcing us to grow. They're forcing us to develop in the downtown. There's really nothing we can do. We have to approve all these egregious applications that are well beyond our official plan. And when you actually look at the the reality of the situation, yes, the province sets growth targets. And if you look at where we are in meeting those citywide, as well as where we are meeting those in the downtown, we're there. We're meeting them. And so then the issue becomes, okay, so, so we've satisfied our obligations under places to grow. Now, explain to me why we're approving applications that are two, three, and four times what is in our official plan well beyond our growth targets and our growth requirements. That decision's on us. So, you know, I think people get really frustrated um, in Canada where uh, the discussion isn't about the merits of the argument, it's about whose responsibility it is. <laughs> so, you know, you get this political hot potato going back, oh, it's the province, oh no, we gave the local government the decision-making responsibility. And there's, there's, there's a partnership, there's a relationship, but each level of government has some decision-making responsibility, and I felt really uh, the conversation was abdicating that responsibility. So we needed to not only own up to what we could control, but then what we couldn't control, make sure we advocate. So that is certainly um, a huge part of of what I intend to set out to do. Uh, As it relates to the downtown, we need to remove the mobility hub designation. That's uh, a conversation I've already initiated with the province. We need to uh, move the urban growth center off the downtown to remove some of that uh, pressure to overdevelop. And then we need to continue to make the case with every development application. We're meeting our growth targets. We're doing fine. We don't need to overdevelop and stand firm on that. And then uh, everywhere else, we can simply lobby the province if we do need to make changes. My concern about open 
opening places to grow is that the pressure, and we're already starting to hear it, is to open greenbelt lands for redevelopment, which I'm absolutely adamantly opposed to, and so is the community. Well, even the premier mused about that at one point. It during during the provincial election yeah. did, and then was called out on it, and kind of dialed it back a little. But we're starting to see, you know, the the uh, build. Uh, BILD, and I forget what the acronym, Building Industry Land Development, uh, essentially a lobby group last week put out a, uh, you know, a document essentially saying we need more land and they will lobby hard for that. And they will lobby the province hard for that. And so we as elected officials, as community members who respect and care for our rural, our agricultural um, land base, we need to lobby just as hard to protect that and preserve it. Is there a concern that uh, that growth is going to happen? We know that, but is there a concern that sometimes it can just be running a runaway growth that you can't control? Case in point: uh, the CN Tower celebrated its anniversary last week. There's a picture in the yes. uh, in the Globe and Mail of the day it opened, and there's not a high rise anywhere around. And that was back in the 1970s. And I uh, figure, and now you look at what the, the Toronto waterfront looks like, and you figure, how did this happen? From where it was to to where it is now, and Absolutely. certainly you don't want. And I, I know we always use Toronto as the poster child for how things should not grow, but by the same token, there's a lesson to be learned there. There's many lessons to be learned in Toronto, and in fact, over the weekend there was uh, an article about the the human impact, the quality of life impact on on people living in uh, Tower City, uh, the Forest of Towers. Is that sunlight is the new hot commodity? And they're now saying, gee, these big towers uh, cast a lot of shadows, and that means people are living mm-hmm. in the dark, and, uh, or they're not getting sunlight. And there's a, we already know the human impact of that. And, and so now they're talking about, well, after the fact, in a sense, after the, the horse has left the barn, maybe we should have some standards on, on, on shadows, and what's acceptable and what's not. And and every application now does require and this is this is standard in the planning act a shadow study. But I've I've read them. I've I've read all of those that have come forward. They're fairly boilerplate and they essentially say that if you get a certain number of hours at any point during the day of sunlight, that's sufficient. And some of that can be, you know, between 10 in the morning and and 2 in the afternoon when we're all sitting in an office, sometimes windowless. We're not getting the advantage of that sunlight, and yet our shadow studies haven't uh, adjusted for that. So, uh, so I think that's a really interesting um, uh, way to to have the conversation. Is that there? There's literally a quality of life and a human impact on this, and so there's that. There there have been some earlier articles um, in the last few months in the Star about the cost of overdevelopment that. You know, people live in a condo, they attract families, and they can literally see the school outside their window, and they can't go there because it's overcrowded. The parks are overcrowded. The transit hasn't hasn't kept up. And that's probably the biggest negative impact on quality of life, is that with all the growth we see in every GTA community, it is absolute gridlock. And that's because there hasn't been a similar investment in transit to match the growth of the population. I'm going to pick up on that when we come back after the break and uh, lots of other things we want to talk about and some of the challenges that uh, your new council is uh, going to be facing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mayor's Town Hall with Mayor-elect Marianne Mead-Ward. Uh, uh, 
and Marilek, because in fact, of course, the swearing-in ceremony is just a few days away. It's December 3rd? A week from today. Okay. And it's at the Burlington Performing Arts Center. Uh, it's open to the public. It's free event, uh, but they are asking people to get tickets from the box office. Uh, so we have a sense of numbers, and so uh, people know that, you know that they have a spot to sit. And, and what I've been told by folks who've recently gone in and tried to get some is that they're going fast, which is terrific. Uh, that's It's an over 700-seat venue, so there's clearly a lot of interest in the community in this new council. So the doors open at 5.30. The council meeting starts at 6.30. We'll all be formally sworn in. Uh, we have to swear an oath in front of a judge. It's a little like a wedding. Uh, and then uh, there will be some entertainment. Uh, I get to have uh, say a few words to the community, which will be great. And then we have a reception afterwards, food and, and more entertainment. So it, it's, it's intended to be festive, but also kick off and formally, it, it formally constitutes the new council. We, we technically start on the first, but we're mm-hmm. not actually formally um, on the job until the third after the inauguration. And name tags will be required because there are some new faces on this council. <laughs> there are five new faces on this council, and uh, I'm very excited to get uh, working with this new team. They, I, I know every single one of them personally. I've encountered them in different capacities over the years in Burlington, and every single one has uh, community service, fundraising, working with the business community, or a variety of, of all of that. And they're very keen to get started, and and uh, you know, a lot. Of it, it, there will be fresh ideas. Uh, our our average age, I think, went down by about twenty five. <laughs> we have, I'm told, three millennials now on our our council, uh, which is which is phenomenal. Uh, I used to be the youngest, and I'm I'm now uh, in the one third of the older old, not the oldest, but <laughs> getting, getting there. Uh, it's it's interesting to see change like that, and of course Hamilton had uh, a, a similar situation. And and no disrespect to anybody who's ever served in public life, but it's I, I think it's healthy for a community to have change at that level to, to have new ideas, new perspectives every now and then. Absolutely, and you know I've always believed that um, elected officials should not overstay our welcome. I support the notion of term limits, uh, but I also support the idea of uh, you know. A, I don't know what the magic number is, two, three, four terms, but, you know, that's a good long time to be in office. And uh, I think you always have to have um, new people coming on board. In in Burlington, the same council was reelected identically in 2014. And so for eight years, it was the same uh, seven folks. And while that can create some uh, stability moving forward, it also led to, I believe, um, some things where there was a detachment from the public and you become, you know, sort of a closed unit rather than always being in touch with your community. And so uh, over over that period of time, I, the the public felt certainly, and they, they spoke to this by electing a new council, that their views were no longer being reflected in the decisions that we were being made. And that's the danger of what can happen when... Um, when you have that sameness for too long. Uh, we were just talking about the number of committees, and I, I think that's something that gets lost on, on the average individual. Uh, you know, they, they may have a specific interest and say, hey, I have to go to that meeting, a planning meeting, whatever the case might be, but you've got a lot of positions to fill. We have 63 
boards and committees that I have to appoint. That's one of that's the first report that I write as the mayor is a recommendation. The council has to agree to it, but the seven of us have to divide up those uh, those internal advisory committees as well as appointments to external boards and committees as well as we're all regional councillors. So we each will be on nine. Uh, whether that's citizen advisory committees, standing committees, or external boards. And some of those are, for example, our citizens' advisories include um, transit committee, uh, uh, which we're trying to start, actually. We, had a, we have a transportation committee, and the transit folks have asked for a standalone, which I think is the right idea. We have heritage, we have accessibility, we have cycling, we have sustainable development, a whole range of advisory committees where we ask the, the community, citizens, to turn their mind to a specific topic and give us advice. Then we have external boards and committees. So that's, uh, in some cases, we were talking about the Burlington Economic Development Corporation, where they are independently run by a board, but they are city, they receive uh, in whole or in part some funding from the city. So we have a relationship and that gives us an appointment for council to have a uh, on their board. So we have uh, Performing Arts Centre, Library, Museum, Burlington Economic Development Corporation, Hydro, and, uh, and a whole bunch of those. And then we have um, uh, standing committees at the city and at the region. So count it all up at 63. So that that's one of the issues that we hear from time to time in the community that our council is too small, that four people can make a decision and chart the destiny of the of the city. You know, would it be better to increase the size of council and and have not only more diverse voices, but when, when it comes literally to divvying up the 63 appointments, uh, you'd have more people. And so each person doesn't take on such a significant burden. Those, those nine meetings are, uh, in most cases, monthly. So, what about community councils? Do all the councillors uh, have that? I mean, because obviously the, there's there's a community involvement. We see that with with a number of the key issues in in the last term of council. But uh, do they meet regularly with with that that body? So each councillor kind of does it differently. But yeah. I know a lot of the incoming councillors are talking about setting up either a ward-specific advisory committee. I had that in my first term um, that, you know, you have it for the entire ward. In my second term, we we actually decided to go, decided to go neighborhood by neighborhood. So I had a community liaison program where I had captains in each of the uh, specific neighborhoods in my ward to give me advice. And we meet, we would meet uh, fairly regularly. And that brought in some new voices. But each uh, each councillor does it a little differently, and because each of our wards aren't just one community, right? They're a community of neighbourhoods, and so there'd be three or four probably different neighbourhoods that are distinct and, and would want their own voice, so you can either constitute that as one one group with multiple voices or have different councils in each area. So. If if um, the councillors did that, they, of course, would have more than nine <laughs> boards and committees. But I know all of them are talking about doing something in their ward uh, around setting up some sort of a citizens group or multiple citizens groups. One of the key issues you're going to have to deal with uh, right after the, uh, the the swearing-in ceremony, or not too long after anyway, is is cannabis. Yes. Uh, every community has, well, there's a, a deadline, obviously, that the province has given to whether you opt in or opt out. What are your thoughts on this? So this came up, obviously, during the election because the province set a hard deadline of January 22nd for municipalities to decide if we were going to opt into having retail stores in our borders or opt out. And so 
that question was put to every single candidate who put their name on a ballot, uh, certainly in Burlington, and, and it was probably, it, I know it came up in other jurisdictions as well. So my response then, as it is now, is that we uh, should not opt out double negative there. <laughs> we should, uh, you know, this is a legal product. Um, I did meet many residents at the door who use cannabis. Some of them use it for recreational, sorry, for medicinal purposes, but a number of folks use it um, for, I, I'm not going to call it recreational. They use it because it gives them some sort of relaxation or some benefit, but it's not, it's outside of a medical prescription, if mm-hmm. you will. And a lot of these folks were seniors. They uh, defy every stereotype that you can ever think about, about who might be using cannabis in a community. And I think we have to destigmatize the use of this product. It is legal. It does have some medicinal value, but it also... Um, provides people with a certain amount of of pleasure or recreation. And I don't begrudge that piece either because, um, you know, how many of us drink alcohol for the pure joy of it, right? Um, so this is, you know, the conversations we're having around cannabis is very similar, I'm sure, to the conversations that were had around alcohol uh, in the prohibition, pre-prohibition era, that the concerns we're hearing about cannabis, which are legitimate, you know, will more people use it? Will children get it? Will this cause, uh, you know, a public health problem. Uh, We had the same issues with alcohol. And so, yes, we need to regulate it. Yes, we need to educate. Um, But if we just close our doors, we're burying our head in the sand about this. It is coming. And we force our own residents to either leave our community to get this product that is legal, or we encourage the black market to flourish, which it is now. I mean, people can get, if, if they mm-hmm. want oh, recreational sure. cannabis, they can get it now. And so if we actually start to, and that was the argument with alcohol and prohibition, if we legalize it, we um, we take the crime out of it, number one. Number two, we get some revenue from it to deal with some of the health issues or the public health issues that are already here because people are already using this product illegally. And so we have no resources, we have no mechanism to deal with some of the public health issues and the education around it, and we allow the black market to flourish. So it is, it's going to be very controversial. There are, um, you know, the neighboring municipality of Oakville during the election, uh, the majority of candidates who ran and who were elected said they were likely going to want to opt out. And I'm not sure where Halton Hills or Milton stand, but I've I've heard sort of similar views. So so Burlington might be the only Halton region uh, municipality. Uh, and and the co- my colleagues on council, I I actually spent some time last night looking up how everybody responded to that question because it's published sure. it's in the post. And there was a it was a mixed view. There were there were a couple people that said yes. Uh, there were a couple people that said sort of a qualified yes, and a couple that said no. So I'm not sure where the council as a whole is going to go on this. The challenge if we opt out now is that there is money on the table to assist with enforcement and other matters, which we will have to deal with whether we opt in or out. So just one example, there's a huge concern about secondhand smoke and people smoking in Mm -hmm. public. And whether you get your cannabis in the mail or whether you get it at a local retail outlet, we are going to have to deal with this issue. And in fact, it's already here with us. So right now, the region is the um, 
enforcement arm of the Smoke-Free Ontario Act. So, of course, cannabis is going to be treated the same as cigarettes. So we need to bring in some regulations, and we will have the power to do that with... um, you know, with some bylaws, but then we need the money to enforce that. We we don't have it right now. So if we opt out, that's a hundred percent on our taxpayers' dime. We won't get any revenue related to to help us deal with that issue. Some public education around these issues and and the costs of implementing this will be borne a hundred percent by the taxpayer. I don't believe that's the right thing. Are you comfortable with the the, the regulations that as set out by the province? I don't think they're restricted. Radio, radio separation, things of this nature? Yeah, I, I think the regulations need to be strengthened. I am very concerned about what I have seen. And so that is uh, something we certainly have to engage in advocacy through uh, with our, we have to partner together as municipalities. We have to work through the Association of Municipalities of Ontario and, and lobby the province to increase some of those distance separators to give us more tools to deal with this. It's not sufficient right now. And that, and that will be a work in progress. But, but the sh- in the short term, we have to say, yes, we will, uh, we will allow this to be sold. But we also need some help from you, province, in terms of revenue and in terms of um, further restrictions. And therein lies part of the problem. I've talked to members of Hamilton Council that are expressing the same sort of concerns that you've just talk- talk- talked about here. And, and they like the idea that there's money on the table, but it's only for the first two years. Right. Uh, and after that, well, it's up to the municipality to cover those costs. And you like to think that maybe some of those things uh, about enforcement will, will dissipate uh, in that two-year period as people get more educated, but there's no guarantee of that. But is, is this going to come down to, in, in many people's minds, a, a revenue-sharing situation? Because what I'm hearing now is, look, we like a little piece of the pie if we're going to be doing this. Well, there should be. There, there should be. And I, I mean, I think there's a, really a larger conversation to have about how municipalities relate to the province. There are far too many areas where the province uh, really handcuffs the municipalities. We are the most direct level of government. We are immediate to our public. We, uh, we handle most of the day-to-day issues that people face. And yet we have limited powers, only uh, what the province deigns that we can be responsible mm-hmm. with. So... And the the one outlier, the one unique um, uh, player in all of this, of course, is Toronto. They have the City of Toronto Act. But even there, you know, we have the mayor of, of Toronto uh, not so long ago saying that he would have to go in his short pants to beg the premier for the for the uh, the powers to do what he knew and his council knew were the right things for the residents. And so I think there is a larger conversation to be had. Uh, and planning would be the other big issue there that municipalities need to continue to have more. Uh, more authority. Uh, cannabis is one. Uh, transportation would be another. And we do need to now start to share in the revenue instead of, and I would say that at the federal level as well. I, I don't think it's fundamentally democratic for municipalities to have to wait and see or constantly be chasing this grant envelope or that funding pledge uh, you know, to to get the share of tax dollars collected that we know should be coming to us, whether that's infrastructure, whether that's health, whether that's social services. We need stable, predictable funding sources. We need a share of that revenue and not uh, be subject to, you know, the whims of, of political uh, changes and and always have to be chasing uh, those dollars. That's a lot. That's, that's staff, you know, full-time staff positions going to the province, asking them to give us back the money our taxpayers gave to them. And but we... Th- th- 
elected officials have been singing from that song sheet for the last gener- couple of generations, really. It's, you know how difficult it is to pry money away from the federal and provincial governments. Yes. Uh, you do get some gas tax money, but that took an awful yes, long time. But it's pennies on the dollar, really, and, and nowhere near the needs that uh, any community, whether it's Burlington or Hamilton, uh, really need, actually, to, for instance, for transit and things of that nature. Well, we need to keep pushing, and we need to get louder, and our communities need to get louder, because ultimately it's their money. And is the public satisfied with the regulations being set um, away from the local municipality? And certainly in Burlington, we've heard loud and clear no uh, on planning matters. The municipality should have far more say and control. And and the previous government, uh, you know, eventually heard that message and, and changed the Ontario Municipal Board to the local planning appeal tribunal. That helped, but we, we still have a long way to go. And so what we've seen is that when municipalities get together and make some noise along with their communities and make it uh, part of an election issue, that the province will start to slowly give us some some back some of our powers. But we need to reform how the money trickles down. We get money from the province. So it's not about asking for more than our share. It's just the manner by which uh, we get some of it, other than the gas tax, which is... You know, it's a predictable, we, we know what we're getting and we can divvy it up. But uh, all of the, the, you know, the grants that are available, the various funding op, uh, envelopes, we have to, the, the criteria and the process to access that is very administrative. So I, I, would, I would put it to Mr. Ford that if you want to cut red tape, that's a great place to start. Well, but you see, the answer usually is, okay, you can just tax. If you want more money, you can just tax your people. And and that's, it's a very short-sighted answer, but it's, yeah. it's the one that we've been receiving from the province for the last little while. Well, the public has always said, uh, rightly so, that do a better job with the money that we give you and that we entrust with you. And that's exactly what uh, what I'm a- advocating for, is that we already get money from the federal government and the province, but we have to jump through so many hoops and spend so much money in staff time and hours to access that, making our case repeatedly on a one-off basis, project by project, one at a time, to say, we, you know, what about just giving us the money and letting us do what we know we need to do with it? So the money is there. It's just the process by which we have to uh, access it is very cumbersome. It's very red tape heavy and, uh, and fundamentally not, not democratic. Uh, lots more to talk about, but uh, we're going to have to do it in the next session, I guess. Uh, congratulations once again. I look forward to working with you over the next uh, four years, I guess, as we uh, continue to uh, talk about Burlington. Thanks for coming in today. Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.